welcome back to Church Leaders Roundtable Podcast. I'm Stacy, and I am here with my co-host, Kevin. Hey, everybody. Sarah. Hey, everyone. And Darren. What's up? And we're discussing another week of church trauma. All right, so let's just get right into it. Having been raised in the church from the time I was born, basically, throughout my whole life up until just a few years ago, right? So I was raised in the very strict, um, when I was little, it was the Conservative Baptists of America or something like that, CBA or Conservative Baptist Fellowship, something like that. But it was basically Independent Fundamental Baptist Church. (laughs) So you're exposed to all sorts of stuff from basically infanthood all the way up to adulthood. Um, But specifically i remember when i was like seven and eight years old our church decided to show and host um the trilogy series of um the end times trilogy series which included uh uh distant thunder uh mark of the beast and um those ones right so and i forget a thief in the night which were absolutely traumatizing like traumatizing because as an eight-year-old you're watching what should be a rated r movie in your church because at one point there is a beheading (laughs) and i mean that was like seriously traumatizing for me because at the beginning of the movie you know they play that larry norman song i wish we'd all been ready and it's very like kind of creepy sounding i mean 70s music was not fabulous by any means and that's when it was produced so it just held on like this notion for me as a kid of like oh my god like if i don't say the sinner's prayer essentially like and i know that even my little sister at that point had i'm not gonna be raptured with my family you know, when the rapture happens and who knows when that could happen any day. And I would be left behind just like some of those other people had been left behind. And then Patty decided not to get the mark of the beast on her forehead. So she got her head chopped off, you know, and I was like terrified. So that night, obviously I went to my room and I, I was too embarrassed to tell anybody. So like, because that's just my personality back then. And even now sometimes, but I just was like, okay, Lord, I don't want to go to hell. So this is me praying. And I'm sorry for all my sins that I've done as a, you know, an infant to an eight year old (laughs) that has done these terrible, horrific sins. And that was it. And I just felt, and then even after that, going to Bible camp and stuff when I was super young, And we would discuss the great white throne judgment and what that means and standing before God. And it was like, they made it sound, and it'd be things that we discuss in the cabin, you know, late at night. So everything late at night is scary at camp. So (laughs) it was just, for me as a kid, like that, that stuff really stuck with me. And I feel like church leaders, we've been ingrained all of our life to basically scare people out of hell. I think and that's a really that good is, way to put it. <laughs> yeah. That is trauma. That okay, is like scare the hell out of people. Yes. <laughs> 
So that's just something that I, you know, that has stuck with me all those times. And then just grow up. I grew up at the beginning of the purity culture. So I grew up at the, you know, kind of the beginning of that. And, uh, and it just, that also like did a number for me too, because then I ended up making like really stupid, stupid like decisions in my adulthood because of the purity culture. So I can go into that more another time, but it's, it's interesting. Um, did you hear that Josh, Joshua Harris, uh, recanted the whole book? Yes. Yeah. After all that. (laughs) How how did you feel about that? I never read the book. So, because that was after me, that was after my time, but I read that book when I was 15 years old, maybe. And I mean, it'd been out for a couple of years by that point, but I don't know for, I don't know if it was because I was 15 and wasn't getting the full picture of what he was saying or because I was like looking at it starry eyed, but I didn't, I personally, and I know this is not true for the vast majority of people who read it, but I personally did not feel the so-called attack that he himself says that he did on dating and marriage. And I mean, I haven't read the book in, geez, I don't even know, more than 10 years, you know, more than a decade now. But I don't know, I felt I felt like that book had a lot of good things to say, but because it got roped in with the whole purity culture movement and uh just all the shaming that went on with it it got a very bad name and i know that there's people that disagree with me on that but yeah i think when i was i don't know if it was high school or maybe even college was when the whole true love waits campaign came out oh, i don't know yeah. if you remember that. remember that i think that was i think i was in college when that started did you sign and, a card yeah uh- <laughs> <laughs> See, I never had anything like that or the purity ring. Thank God. Like, I didn't, you didn't have, have to a go ring. Oh, all that, you, didn't, but... you weren't really pure if you didn't have the <laughs> ring. Mm-hmm. You got to sign the card and get the ring. You got to get both of them. Yeah, and See, Pizza Hut had to like endorse it and give you pizza for your purity. All I know <laughs> is that it existed for some people mm-hmm. um, in participating locations only. <laughs> That is so funny. I did not know that. Oh my yeah, god. Yeah, we had a we had a whole like ceremony uh where our parents presented us with the rings and we signed the cards and it was like it was a Sunday night. It wasn't like it wasn't Sunday morning in front of the whole church thing, but it was definitely during a regular meeting time where anybody could come and witness air quotes this. It was a whole thing. Did it it feel, did it feel natural to you at the time or did it feel like it was being forced on you? What was that like? For me, it felt natural, but I think that was more because of my youth pastor and who he was. Uh, And I mean, I've still got a great relationship with him. He, I call him up maybe a couple times a year just to talk about life and he's no longer in ministry, but I think it was natural to me and it felt very real the way that he presented it. But again, I think that was because of who he was. I think if anybody else in that church, if any of the other pastors, especially in that church would have presented the exact same material to us, it would have come off very different because I still know the other pastors and their way. Yeah. They're, they're very much not the same way. Um, a lot more fundamentalist. So do you think culturally, like just speaking from like culture that 
you know, and I'm going to make a generalization, but I can speak to it that growing up, um, you know, Latinos don't talk about sex. And if you do, it's very much you wait till you you're married and point blank period. So there's really no opportunity for really for conversation, I feel like. So do you feel like that kind of just like normalized it a little bit for you? I think so. Uh, I mean, yeah, you're right. In Latino culture, you just you don't have sight. It's just it's black or white. You either do or you don't, and you don't. This is one of the things you do not do. So, yeah, I think that definitely could have uh, normalized it for me, like you said, as opposed to, I don't know, a lot of people where, yeah, it's just not the same way. It's There's a lot more gray area. Interesting. For me, okay, so the trauma aspect of the purity culture came right. in when I met my ex-husband, and um, at that point, I had been with essentially, okay, so oh, two other guys at that point. So, but I was 25 when I met my ex-husband. But he was basically posing as a Christian or acting as a Christian or whatever you call it. I don't know. Is this like reverse missionary dating? No, no, not at all. No. So he was a worship leader. I was a worship leader. And it was just terrible. It was was, a natural. It was a match made in hell. (laughs) Yes. Basically. You never never date somebody at another church. (laughs) Right, that's a cardinal This was a long distance thing and a quick thing that happened. And so I was, I always claim that it was my moment of insanity time in my life. Reasonable, acceptable. But the thing is, what happened was like, I kind of fell into this like, okay, I want to marry him. He's a worship leader. This is great. I can move out of state, which is what I wanted to do, even though I was planning to go out of the country. And when he came to visit, we ended up having sex. And, and then I was like, oh, shit, we have to get married. Like, I don't know why it was that way with him and not with the others, I guess, because one was out of the country. So that's why probably. But I was, you know, you just fall into that trap at that time, too. And I was in church leadership and so forth at a church. And so you kind of automatically have that guilt of like, you should probably get married. Mm-hmm. Right. And even yeah. though everything in my head was like sending off all these like red flags about him, I went ahead and did it anyway because, you know, that's, you marry, that's the culture. You sex with. Right. Yeah. And you feel all that guilt and shame. So then these god awful three years go by of being married to him. And then more church trauma happens because of that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But then you have to go back and say when the divorce goes through, there was something about like needing to repent to my former pastors that I had been at the church before and say, I'm sorry, I didn't listen to you. I shouldn't have married him because they were telling me not to. So there's like this whole, like there's a whole stream of things that goes along with it. And it's just weird. But then there's the trauma of the divorce that goes along with which I know Sarah is very familiar with as well and just abuse that happens from the spouse or the ex-spouse and then what happens in the church Mm -hmm. along with that and how you're treated and things that they tell you and you're suddenly like well what the fuck like because Mm -hmm. you need help 
but yet you're I don't know not ostracized I wasn't ostracized thankfully but it was like yeah yeah it was weird because like my even I even stayed at my pastor's house for a couple of weeks in this small transition of needing a new apartment and um, it was just weird because they were telling me that if I filed um for divorce that I wouldn't have grounds they didn't know and mm. I at that point I didn't even know yeah the whole truth that was going on and so I didn't file for divorce and in fact I was the good Christian wife and I prayed 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 that he would come back to me and be my prodigal husband you know and change and our marriage would be restored and that didn't happen and so it wasn't until after our divorce went through that I was like oh this was a really good thing because he's been abusing me all these years and it took me to go through a divorce to even see that I had been like mentally emotionally abused all that time that I was with him and I think that speaks to kind of trauma in general where we generally don't see that we're going through that sort of thing until after we're done with it. Right. You know, we don't see that purity culture is damaging until after we're done with it. Again, mm-hmm. like I personally, if I relied fully on my own experiences with purity culture, I'd be like, oh yeah, cool, whatever. Let's do true love weights at every single church. Right. But which it's not, do. which people do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but we, it's it's until after the fact when uh, you know, as they say, hindsight's twenty twenty, that we realize that things weren't quite as peachy as as they seemed. They right. were a lot worse even than we thought. I think, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. why it's so important to talk about this sort of thing because trauma doesn't take one shape or form it's all of these things together it's probably the worst part about it but i mean you you really said something hindsight is 2020 and 2020 was trash but uh to go back for a second i'm thinking about how these things happen and um earlier stacy when you were sharing i was thinking about how people say and do these things because they they're trying to scare the hell out of you or put compliance in on you mm-hmm. because it says something about them yeah. like it 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 says if 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 i you know, uphold these rules that i'll be safe that if we all abide by these same kind of values that everyone will be okay um and i think that's the that's the hard part because it's hard to tell people who have good intentions that they did something harmful yes you know, they're like, oh, I was just praying for you. I just wanted your marriage to be <laughs> successful. And so I told you to do the best I knew. And you're like, yeah, that was that was that was abusive. That was toxic. Mm-hmm. I think but that's how, the hard you know, part that you know. even that sometimes even the best we can do is still not good. Mm-hmm. Even the best we can do is still abusive. Right. I mean, I think about that with my kids all the time. Like, I know my parents did the best they could with me, but there's also, and I talk, I talk with them about this. I talk with my sisters about this and my wife. There's still stuff that they did that damaged me, that hurt me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they were doing the best that they could do. Um, and so I, you know, I keep that in mind with with my kids and and the people that I pastor. Where I think we have to we have to stop thinking what is the best that I can do and start mm-hmm. thinking what is the best that they need, right? What do they need? 
Now, what can I do? Because those are two different things. And sometimes Mm -hmm. a lot of times what I can do is not what they need. Mm. Um, We literally censor ourselves on other, you know, for other people's good. (laughs) Yes. That's the premise of being trauma informed is taking it off of yourself and really looking at other people, other people's experiences, putting yourself in their shoes, Mm -hmm. trying to understand that life is not so black and white. You know, that mm-hmm. people that are coming and walking into the church have so many different things and, and trauma and just situations that they're walking through. And if you just have this script and these very, well, you have to do this, 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 then this to be a Christian and you can't do this, you're missing an opportunity to, I feel like to really disciple and really walk with people through their tough times and really bring people together and help people heal. And I think that's what's so important about the more you talk about you know, hear people's stories about what the different traumas that they faced were, we're going to be more aware of how mm-hmm. we can serve people better and, and just have more empathy. That's the most important thing is looking at things from, from other people's perspectives, having that empathy. That's what loving your neighbor means. Right. Mm-hmm. It's simple, but I think I know a lot of people, a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, a lot of pastors don't get that. And we go back to, well, what do I think is best? Mm-hmm. What do I think you need, or what do I think the church needs, or what do I, what do I, what do I? And we, you know, I want to scare the hell out of you. I want to love the hell out of you. That's the term that I heard growing up. We're gonna love the hell out of them. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think it was we're gonna love the heck out of them, with a kind of <laughs> wink and a nudge, right? Yeah, right. You can't say hell in church unless you're unless you're right. unless you're actually saying hell, yes. <laughs> unless you're describing the place. Yeah, right. And then you get to um, yell it. <laughs> Sarah, you were you mentioned trauma informed, and I know for me that makes like perfect sense. Uh, because like you know, I like been in education and I'm thinking about the ways that trauma like shows up. But sometimes sometimes a, a, a phrase like that might sound to somebody like, Oh, well, we just have to walk on eggshells around everybody. Mm. Is that what that means? Absolutely not. No, because that still makes it about you. If you feel like you have to walk on eggshells, it the idea of of empathy is is really just it's listening. It's shutting up, you know, trying to turn off your bias or check your bias and really sitting with a person and whatever it is that they're walking through. I mean, I, I, I always say when I one of my other jobs I have is teaching um, a social emotional learning curriculum to middle school kids. And before we even get into empathy, we talk about active listening because how can you really, you know, show empathy if you're not listening to people Mm -hmm. and active listening mean really giving that person that space without, you know, well, you have to do this or, well, Mm -hmm. how about you read this book to know just sitting with someone, providing them a safe space to hear their story and hear what, because through that you'll be able to hear their need. Yeah. You know, you'll, you'll people, if you give them space and you make people feel safe, I, I feel like a lot of times they tell you what they need, Yeah. you know, or you can get to that place with somebody where you can, you know, help them or um, whether it's providing, if they ask for a resource, not everybody is asking for resources. Some people just need someone to listen mm-hmm. to them. There is power in hearing somebody's story. There is power in letting somebody just talk and get it because you might be the first, the church, them walking into a church, you might be the first person they come across um, Mm -hmm. where you have that opportunity to open them up safely um, to share what it is that they're going through. So you can be that, that um, avenue of support. 
um, a lot of times, you know, I've in different, in different positions, I've had clients, you know, come and say, no one actually asked me like what I was going through. They just assumed and told me what I needed to do. No one actually Mm -hmm. asked me, you know, why the whys, the whys of what I feel the way I do, why I'm walking with what, through what I'm walking through, what happened to me, not what's wrong with you, what happened to you. Mm. So I I think, you know, it's walking on eggshells, isn't it? It may feel uncomfortable if you're not used to it, if you're used to being from a position of power and telling people what to do and telling people, you know, the resources that they need, the scriptures they need to do. Mm -hmm. If you're in, if you're used to that, it's going to feel uncomfortable to just sit back um, and let people come to you and let people steer that, that um, conversation in terms of how they need to be supported. I think there's power in it. And the more we do it, the more we can learn about people and really, um, you know, I, I always say there's power in somebody's story. And that's that's that the part that uh, maybe we struggle with sometimes because, again, those good intentions say, oh, I don't want to just listen and just be, have you dump all this, you know, trauma story on me. I want to fix it. I want to get, mm-hmm. I want to get to solutions. And again, that's a good intention, but sometimes it betrays what we're actually trying to do because, yeah. you know, like you said, instead of people feeling listened to, instead of them feeling understood, instead of doing the work that actually builds the trust where they're willing to go with you to these further places, instead of doing that, you've got people um, kind of getting told to shut up and listen because I know what you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're like, oh, no, 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 no. If you, if you know anything, you know that's not the person who's really going to help you, even if what they're saying no. is true. Because yeah. that's the other part we go, but it is true that you need to work on this, or it is true that you need right. a book, or it is true that you need a therapist. Yes, but there has to be trust. If, right. if you're not mm-hmm. showing yourself as trustworthy, then they shouldn't trust you to be the kind of person that they're getting that, that advice from, no matter how true it is. Because, um, again, they've been hurt. They're in defense mode. They're in survival mode. And here you come beaten through the door. They don't know if you're a friend or an enemy because we don't do the work of listening and, and developing that empathy. And trustworthiness is probably underrated in the church mm-hmm. um, because we we often walk in expecting that you're supposed to be able to trust the pastor. We expect mm-hmm. that you're supposed to be able to trust um, different people who are at the church. And then when, the, when that trust is broken, you're like, the ch- church is full of hypocrites and I don't want to be here anymore, which makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> but it's also like, because there's more work to do than to just show up and have somebody with a title or with a collar tell you right. what does say at the Lord. Um, so yeah, we, we do have to do that and get past this part where we just center our own wisdom and knowledge and anointing and instead like really listen to people, live with people. Jesus was listening to people and he was the way and the truth and the life. Mm-hmm. And he still listened to the woman at the well. Yeah, I think depending on to the type of church background that you come from like stillness and quietness is not understood or respected there are some church traditions where it's always noisy and there's always talking or music or something and they they don't know how to just sit and hold space for each other and i feel like that's seriously lacking because I remember it, there was one time at one church, it, you know, we have like this, like what would we called at the time, high praise time, like right after communion. And then it would fall silent for like 
a minute waiting on and this happened like every time we had communion or whatever every time and and then we'd wait for like one or two three different specific people to have a word right (laughs) whether it was in tongues or not you know and then if it was in tongues then you had to wait for the person to give the The interpretation (laughs) interpretation interpretation of it but it's kind of like that where you're like oh my god it's quiet in here I can't handle the quiet. And I know I get like that personally myself sometimes. Like I, it's my ADHD brain and ADD brain. And I just like, sometimes I have on the TV and then I'll have on the, the radio and then I'll go sit at the piano and play. And it's just because my, I don't know, my psyche likes noise, I guess, or something. So when there are times like when I'm reading a book or something and I don't have anything on, it kind of like drives me insane. So it's kind of like that where we're not all conditioned or we don't all have that ability innately to hold space for other people and to listen to other people. And I feel like that's seriously lacking in a lot of church traditions or and with church leadership, I feel like especially we just don't listen to other people's stories, like you said. And I feel like we miss out on a lot of aspects of getting to know people in a real way. And we make a lot of assumptions when we don't listen to them. Mm-hmm. We and listen. Like- it's just prayer time. <laughs> That's when people <laughs> share their story. That's what I think about is the, the time I would say when people are sharing the stuff is through just like a prayer time, but there's not uh, at least, I, I mean, from my experience, maybe not other opportunities where people are actually sharing their heart and their pain mm-hmm. and what's going on. Yeah. Even in those prayer times, at least from what I've experienced, even in those prayer times, there's never any follow-up. There's never any, hey, Stacy, I heard you said ABC at, at prayer time last night, and I just, I just want to follow up on that. How can I help you? How can I mm-hmm. serve you? Is there anything I can do? Is there anything that you need? And people, you know, people don't do that. We just go, God bless Stacy, amen, and move on with our lives. <laughs> and that's not building trust. One of the most uh, powerful things right. I heard in the last couple of years was from a, it was in a seminar, and it was some mega church pastor. And he was talking about like getting visitor information, basically. But it pertains to this. He said, whenever you stand on stage and you tell people, hey, fill out our connection card or text this number with your name or go to our website, do this. You know, whenever you try to get people's information, they're trying to evaluate whether or not you deserve that information. Mm -hmm. They're not going to say it that way. But that's what they're trying to figure out. And so you have the time between the start of a service, between them walking in, and they're probably going to walk in five minutes late to service. So between them walking into your building to you standing on stage and saying, hey, grab that connection card in front of you and fill it out, which is probably going to be 10, 15 minutes. You have that much time to get them to trust you. So what are you doing? And that this was his question. What are you doing as a church and as a leader to get people to trust you instantly? And we don't think about that enough. And I mean, I don't mean this in like a transactional manner. I want everybody's money and everybody's email so that I can add it to my, I don't know, weekly, monthly fundraising, whatever. 
but we don't think about that enough where we're saying, hey, what do I have to do to get this person just walking in through the door to trust me enough to say, hey, yeah, maybe I can open up about my relationship with God. Maybe I can listen to you for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or however long, whatever, for you to tell me about X, Y, Z. Why should I go back to your website? Why should I read your blog? Why should I listen to your podcast? Whatever. Um, and we don't we don't talk about that enough. Instead, we just go straight to, well, I'm a church leader. I'm a pastor. And so you should trust me. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, way too many people have shown themselves untrustworthy, even in the last year, for anybody to say, yes, I trust you completely without having any other knowledge about you, but still pastors and and I think just churches in general sit back and scratch their heads going, I don't understand why people don't trust us to, t- to talk to them about uh, uh, purity and what it means to have a healthy sex- sexuality in your marriage. Well, it's because you spent 30 years shoving down people's throats that they just need to never have any sexual urges ever. And then when the night that they get married, then they get married. And then whenever a mega church pastor or a, a prominent university president gets caught in an affair and in a divorce, we say, Oh no, it's okay. Because they are a man of God. It's preaching now. Well, okay. Well, this is why people don't trust you. Yeah. This is why nobody wants to have anything to do with you. That's a whole sermon all by itself. So I it see. is. <laughs> but the but the, the thing about it, it wasn't, it's often not, oh my gosh, I can't believe that person did that. I mean, there's some egregious things that do happen. It's more often as like, we knew you were faking the whole time. Mm-hmm. And so, <laughs> no, like you doing all this, oh, I don't, I don't go in the car alone with women and I don't have meetings alone. And at the end of the day, you was getting your whole life in secret. And we could have had that conversation a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, you were pre- presenting this facade of intention. Again, you know, I'm mm-hmm. supposed to be this way. And so I'm going to live into this facade. I'm going to mm-hmm. live into this expectation mm-hmm. rather than being more honest and upfront. Because maybe you do have something going on that you're not so proud of. Yeah. But if we normalize being honest about that stuff, you give, you know, like Bre- Brene Brown says, you get permission when you're vulnerable, you give permission for other people mm-hmm. to be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But, yes. you know, yeah. I had one of those church pastors who knew how to just read everybody down to their toes from the pulpit, but he never, ever had anything he was struggling with. He never, ever had anything he was wrong about. He, he was always right. And if you found faults in him, it was your lack of spirituality. Mm-hmm. It was the devil trying to use you. Wow. Um, you know, meanwhile, his kids didn't like him, you know, like he didn't, he really didn't like his own church at that point, but he created this pattern where it was always about what's wrong with you, not, you know, hey, here's something I'm struggling with, you know, let's, what, what can I be praying with, with you as well? Mm-hmm. Um, I have to be careful of it as a, as an Enneagram too, and somebody who's very much about helping and giving to others. Um, it can be easy for me to be so invested in serving other people and being there for other people and not being very intentional about saying, hey, here's what I need. Here's how I need to be supported. And a lot of uh, church leaders and caregivers tend to be in that kind of mindset where they're like, oh, there's no need to talk about me because I'm here to take care of you. But again, evangelist Brene Brown says that is a form of pride. That is a thing where we're so busy being the, the, the good helper 
that we can't receive um, the help and the support that we insist that we are equipped and qualified to give to others. That's so good. I'm so glad you brought up the, the vulnerability piece because, you know, Kevin, when you were talking about trust, I, that, I think the vulnerability, like we underestimate how powerful it is mm-hmm. to building trust with people that when people see their leaders are honest and about their stuff, because I think some of us um, and to people who, you know, are not attending churches assume, you know, we, we hear those stereotypes that churches are hypocritical or they're judgmental, you know, that there's this idea that you're going to walk into this church and the church is full of the, you know, supposed to be full of perfect people that have all their life together. And so that you can't be real. So there's already kind of that precedence. I feel I feel like created those assumptions about some churches. So the more churches can kind of be open and more vulnerable, that we're just people here. Mm-hmm. We're no we're no that we are just people here, and we all have stuff going on. And how can we connect with each other and provide a safe space and grow and heal together? Whether you're the worship leader, the youth pastor, the you know person that controls the kitchen in the back when when you know because every church service at the end you gotta have food at least i don't know Methodist, methodist churches maybe but i don't know what y'all did but regardless of where you're at in the church you know that everybody is carrying something everybody is struggling with someone something and how can we support each other instead of you know i have to have this 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 idea that because i'm a pastor because i'm in leadership you know i have to have this this image I think sometimes leaders are so focused on this image that you have to create, you know, as a church leader so that, you know, people, and and sometimes it's because people will judge you, you know, a church, a a pastor with, you know, a nice clothes on or a car or something, somebody's going to judge them. So to their point, you know, I think people, you know, are just afraid they're, they're protecting their image, but it's knocking down those barriers. I think it's going to help bring us and bring people help create these safe spaces a lot of that comes from or at least my thoughts now as like an outsider out of the church and having been in leadership for me it is seeing what goes on in the church in church leadership and those things that can happen how leaders treat church members, people from the outside, they see that. Mm -hmm. They see that. And they, that trust obviously is not going to be there initially. And I feel like even it's, I feel like if leadership wouldn't take on such a, like, we have to be so holy type of people and we're against this, this, and this, and this, (laughs) you know, like you can't do this. You can't do that. At least that's how it was in my upbringing. You know, there was a list of what you can't do. No dancing, no drinking, no smoking, no drugs, no sex, no, you know, whatever it is. Like real holy. mm, Baptist, I'm telling you, independent. But when you have that, all these lists of do's and don'ts, people from the outside, they don't want to give up those things. You know, who wants to give up drinking or smoking or whatever, you know? And I don't think necessarily, aside from the fact that evangelicals or Christians or whoever, the church leaders have this, like, this need to be, like, against those things. I'm sorry, I'm kind of getting off. No, but you're making sense. I I don't know how to say it. Like, it's just, 
if they would come across and just say, look, come as you are. We seriously, we're not going to judge you. And don't expect like great things from us. <laughs> then I think more non-Christians would come to church a little more often <laughs> and feel more Maybe accepted that. and feel like we weren't being judged. Well, churches would learn that through some of those things, because, you know, you, you listed off things as, you know, things that people just might not want to give up. Right. But some of these things are, it's not easy to give up these things. Some people right. are struggling with addiction and they've mm-hmm. tried. And why would they want to go to a church that's telling them, well, you can't drink or shaming them every time they drink, knowing mm-hmm. that, you right. know, majority of people, a good portion of people who have an addiction problem have a trauma, yep. you know, attached with that, um, that yep. is making it hard for them to, you know, address the addiction. And so how are we being sensitive to these various issues that people are struggling with instead of just handing out a checklist of here's the do's and don'ts on how to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, How are we going beyond that to really understand the life thing, what people are walking through, Mm -hmm. you know, the person that's struggling with the drinking problem, um, you know, or smoking two very hard things that just don't go away automatically. Right. Um, You can't just will them away. You know, I mean, yeah, you know, we can pray for you and all that, but that person really has to, you know, be supported in, 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 in a place, I think in an environment where they can thrive, you know, for that healing and for them to really be able to address, you know, those issues. And so the church, I feel like can play a role in helping people in those various walks of life, if they would, you know, be more open instead of, um, and not all church. There are churches that are open, that are that have programs, and that are assisting mm-hmm. people. I know churches that are, you know, working with um, community agencies and really trying to be that pathway to support people in their journeys. But um, you know, we know that there are some churches that aren't, and that's you know where work can be done. Yeah, I think most churches have, or most pastors maybe, have this idea of they know on a head level, and hopefully this makes sense, they know on a head level that uh, they are the exact same as everybody else in their flock, in their congregation, in their church, whatever you want to call it. They are on the same level as everybody else. But what they truly actually believe about themselves is that they have to be set apart. Well, I've got a title, so I must be in some way better or holier than them. And because I'm not, because I see myself struggling with the same things that my people are struggling with, then I have to hide it because I have to be holier than them. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, But one of the most powerful things that I've ever done in my ministry was at the beginning of 2019, 2019, I think. Yeah. Um, I just made this decision, a very conscious decision to, Hey, I'm going to be honest and a hundred percent open, uh, with my youth group, with, uh, my college kids. I'm going to be fully honest with them about what I'm struggling with mentally day after day. Uh, I've struggled with depression and anxiety since I was 13, maybe been on and off from therapy over the years, currently not uh, seeing a therapist or anything. But at the beginning of 2019, I made this decision that, hey, I'm going to I'm going to just like tell them. And I'm going to be honest when I'm struggling with anxiety, when I'm struggling with depression, when I have some sort of outburst or or breakdown. Um during my during my week, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell them and I'm gonna be honest with it. And it was the most powerful thing that I could have done with them. Because suddenly there's these 15, 16, 18, 20 year old 
not not kids, but students who are coming up to me and saying, hey, um, I had no idea that you struggle with that. But you going through that tells me that I'm fine going through that, that I can go through that too. And our groups exploded. Um, kids were were inviting friends and, and telling them, hey, my pastor talks about how, how he's struggling with depression. He talks about how he used to want to kill himself. He talks about, you know, all these different things that other, and, and I heard this from students. I heard this from their parents and from their, their teachers, even at school, them saying that, hey, I really appreciate, Kevin, the way that you are being honest and open with, with your students, because that's helping to open up conversations at home or at school or in other places about the exact same things that they're going through. And, and it all starts with, with being vulnerable. Uh, I'm an Enneagram three. And so I'm, I'm the performer. I, I want people to see the best side of me. I'm going to put on the face that I think you want to see. I'm going to be the person that I think you want me to be. And so for me to be real is super hard for me. For me to be real and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. And and this is how my mental state is right now. Um, and, and just being fully honest with that is so hard. And I think it's hard for a lot of pastors for a lot of different reasons. But when we start doing that, when we start being that honest and that open with people, they start trusting us. And they start seeing that, hey... Uh, one, it's okay to have trauma. Two, it's okay to still be working through it. And three, there's other people that I look up to that are still working on their trauma that aren't at the end of the tunnel. And and maybe there's not an end of the tunnel. Uh, maybe there's not an end to the trauma, but I can keep working on mine. I can keep on working through this just like they are. But for years, church has been a list of do's and don'ts. Christ accepts you just as you are, but we have this list of rules and regulations for you to join the club. I say it everywhere I go. Church, just, just be honest on your website. Yep. If you if you don't want the gays to come to your church, just go ahead and say it. Just be honest. Let, let them know. Or, Is that how we need to word it? It might be, but if it's not... <laughs> And you're saying, oh no, we don't feel that way. We don't, we don't, we don't want gays not to come to our church. We just want them not to be in leadership, not to be a pastor, not to be on staff. Yeah. Go ahead and say it. I promise you, there's still some some LGBTQ folks who will show up at your church if you're mm-hmm. honest about that, because we already knew that. We th- we're not the ones surprised you are. Um, but you know, I, I tell people, look on uh, churchclarity.org. There's a whole effort for us to just be more upfront and honest about the ways that we engage women in leadership, the ways that we engage LGBTQ people. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with the fact that your church website should have that easily accessible. And if your objection to having that kind of information on your church website is that people won't come to your church because of your beliefs, then I need you to sit more with your beliefs and how you are at least stating them. I'm not saying yeah. you have to change your beliefs, but I need you to like own your stuff in a way that you can make it public and accessible because otherwise it's a bait and switch and that's right. not good trustworthiness. Hey, Darren, could you, could you say that uh, website again? What website was that? Churchclarity.org. And how does, how does that website work? Do we, is it a search engine? What do we do? 
So it's a, it's a really great use resource in a lot of ways. Um, it is um, it's an attempt to to create kind of a baseline standard for what it means for churches to be clear about what their beliefs are. It doesn't assume that one set of beliefs are more important or more right than the other. It's just asking the question, if a, the average person who's checking out a new church, and we know from research that that's typically via the church's website, if the average person came to, to, to your church website and wanted to find out what you believe about these particular topics, would they be able to find it? And um, so the website categorizes as clear, un, clear affirming, unclear, um, clear non-affirming, and unclear, you know, just, you know, it, it breaks down into what you're unclear about. Clear would be, it's directly on your website. There's a mid, middle road, I forgot what the, the description is, where it's like, well, if you go to this particular sermon that's 40 minutes long and you find it in the middle, you can see exactly what they believe, but there's no text way to know that that's exactly where to find it um and then completely unclear is where it's not on the website it's not in a sermon you can't google search for it but if you get an appointment with the pastor and you go to coffee then they might tell you but yeah it's just one of those things where i feel like if people um if people would sit with what they believe more, then they'd have the confidence to engage more authentically. Um, again, with whatever your belief is, it, it, I, I'm not, my horse is not in telling you what to believe. My horse in the game is be open and honest so that you can be trustworthy. Because I've been a part of churches that are non-affirming, but they're open and honest, and there's still folks who come and want to be a part of that community mm-hmm. because um, LGBTQ people aren't necessarily single voter. Uh, issue people when it comes to picking their church um, it's more than just do you affirm everything it's like how can I be a part of this community I want to know up front before I spend two years tithing and giving and serving Mm -hmm. and then you tell me that I can't be a a small group leader yeah I found that just in the last couple months just having conversations with different people really throughout the country telling me that they they're going to this one church or they're doing you know they're going to this one ministry joining this one bible study whatever and i've been some there have been a couple times where i'm confused uh i'm thinking of this one instance where i was talking to to a woman in new york i think um very much uh girl power sort of thing where uh she wants to see women in leadership she wants to see women as senior pastors and everything um and that's just something that's near and dear to her and she started going to a i think it was a southern baptist church and i'm just i'm just talking to her and i go hey do you do you understand what southern baptists believe and she was like, well, what do you mean? I mean, they love Jesus. And I go, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I grew up Southern Baptist, love, you know, love Jesus. Um, but do you understand what they believe? And she kind of kept kicking it around. Um, she went to worship. She went to prayer. She went to like, like what Southern Baptists believe about the Bible specifically. And I said, okay, no, I'm, have you asked anybody what they would say? Because she, she was a part-time uh, college pastor at one point. I said, have you asked them what they would say? if you applied for their college pastor position? And she said, well, no, I haven't. I said, go on Sunday. I said, go and ask your pastor what he would say if you said, hey, I want to be your college pastor. And she called me in tears on on Monday or Tuesday because she said that 
her pastor had told her that they would never let her be the college pastor. She could be the college coordinator. She could be the college director, the college organizer. She just couldn't have the title. Right. Uh, She said that it took her about 15 or 20 minutes of trying to get it out of him until he finally said, no, we, we wouldn't let you be the pastor. We would let you, uh, uh, organize everything and 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 even lead the meetings, but you couldn't be the college pastor. We would be looking for another for a man to to do that. And again, it goes back to if we're just honest and open, if we're just vulnerable with where we're at, it's not we're not going to lose people. And honestly, if all we're worried about is losing people, where we listen to respond, not to understand. Yeah, yeah, that part. When I was in finance, that was one of the first things that they like drilled into us was when you sit down with somebody and we had three questions we would ask them all like all at the beginning, whenever we first sat down with a person for like an initial consultation, basically, it was where do you see yourself um, professionally, uh, personally, professionally and financially in the next three years, five years and 10 years? Um, and we asked that at the beginning of every single meeting just to get a, a baseline of where people were at. And I still ask people that, like, oh, in counseling meetings. just gave me flashbacks. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> those are triggering. <laughs> I don't have that stuff together. But it, it, it helps to give you a baseline, right? And yeah. uh, something that we were told over and over and over again was, as you listen to people say this, you know, answer this, they're going to they're gonna answer as honestly as they feel comfortable. Your job is not to tell them, well, immediately, well, to get there, you have to, or, or in order to do that, you've got to do this. All you have to do in those first 10 minutes of any meeting is just listen to them. Just sit there and shut up and don't say anything. And they will tell you everything that you want to know as long as you listen and when you're done listening listen some more because that's the only way that you build trust with people that's the only way that people learn to to look at you and say oh this is a person i can go to to talk about these things this is somebody that i can go to when i'm having an issue is by listening to them. And then obviously in the church world, like we've been talking about taking that extra step and saying, Hey, here's what I'm struggling with. Here's what I'm going through right now. And don't share that information at coffee hour. And don't share that information. <laughs> don't and share your concerns because people need to understand that you're not going to go and share <laughs> what they just spilled their heart out to you. I'm just going <laughs> to tweet it instead. That's all. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm just telling you this so you can pray because you got to right. know how but to those pray. Are, those are the things that happen so, so much, mm-hmm. so often. Churches just don't know how to deal with trauma at the end of the day. I've worked for, again, pastors with that obviously have trauma that you pick up on the pieces of, and you can almost excuse it. You can almost say, okay, I get it. You're as traumatized as I am. (laughs) But the people walking in day day in, day out, they don't know that. All they see is a pastor that's closed off. All they see is a leader that suddenly left for no reason. All they see is somebody that lashes out in anger at everybody who 
comes at them at 304 instead of 305 on a Tuesday afternoon. Um, and, and people aren't supposed to, they're not supposed to just intuit that. We should be honest and open with our people, whoever they might be. I'm wondering as we uh, as we move toward toward the end of, of this section of it, um, are there moments that you've experienced, uh, and this is for everyone, that you've experienced where you really felt heard, where you really felt understood, you felt listened to? Because I mean, you know, we've been talking about this all night of of um, of the importance of listening, but um, I'm wondering if, if we could make it a little more practical or tangible for folks to just, and, you know, maybe even lift up somebody who really was supportive of you. But um, what does that look like in your life to be heard? I have um, at my recent church, my current church that I serve. Um, so granted I'm in my thirties and have been going to church. I grew up in the church and I would say the first time that I was really heard was in my ministry role when I first got to this church. Um, and one of the members of, uh, we call it in our church, the SPRC team. Um, but one of the members sat down with me and, you know, she just wanted to get to know me and she was just, you know, asking questions, but it was, it was her body language. It was the way that she sat across from me. Um, very open, you know, she didn't sit across from me across from a desk and just have these list of questions or okay, or, you know, when I was sharing certain things, um, it was the way she, you know, I think at one point, she said, um, can you tell me more about that? Instead of, well, oh, I'm sorry, that happened to you, you know, which would sometimes I think in our in our mm. best attempts, we think that we're, you know, trying to empathize with people and really, you know, just closes opportunities for further conversation, if somebody wants to open up. They can always have that opportunity to say, you know, no, I don't you know, want to share that right now. But she really just opened up the floor and gave me the space. And it was her warmth and, um, you know, her eye contact and just how she really heard me. I felt like she really heard me. And so I felt comfortable for the first time, I would say, um, since my divorce, because, um, you know, I, I got this job after my divorce, um, really opening up and feeling like I was safe to do so. And that was huge. It wasn't just like me sharing bits and pieces or sharing the pieces I had to legally, you know, um, it was me actually feeling comfortable with a person, you know, sharing a bit of, a bit of my story, not everything, but a bit of my story. Um, and that, you know, that really gave me, you know, we've been talking about trust all night, but that really did give me trust that just for what this church was. I saw it beyond just a job and just a title of what I was able to do of that maybe I can actually, you know, I can be heard here and I can actually grow here and feel safe here too. Um, and so that, that was, that really, really helped me um, starting out to really just learn to trust the church again. But it, it's unfortunate that I can't really speak to other situations necessarily. And I've been, I've been, been in the church um, all my life. Appreciate that. For me, I'd have to say my current church, honestly, I started, I got in touch with uh, the church I'm at right now with the pastor here when I was still a few months away from leaving my last church. And 
each one of the interviews that I had with him, all three of them were done in secret because I didn't want my current church to know. I didn't want my, I mean, this is the pastor that yelled at me in front of 40 people to keep my three-year-old quiet, right? And so I didn't want him to know that, hey, there's this church and they're they're not just interested in me, they're flying me out. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, when they flew, they flew me and my wife out the last morning that we were here, we were only here three, four days. And the last morning that we were here, me and the senior pastor here, got breakfast together. And we just talked, we talked about, you know, everything that everything that we hadn't had a chance to talk about over the weekend. And finally, I said, Hey, uh, look, I've just got to be honest with you. Um, this is a small part of my story. This is a small part of where I'm coming from. Um, my current church doesn't know that I'm here right now. And if that changes things for you, I completely understand. But I have to do things this way to protect me and protect my family. And he looked at me and said, Kevin, I figured. And it's okay. I've been where you are. And it's okay. And that's really all we said about it at that time. Two days later, he offered me the job. We moved here about a month later, a month and a half later, I think. And I've poked fun at him uh, for it a few times. But I swear, I think the first six months that I was here, like every single day, I would go into his office. And eventually, it was every other day. And eventually, you know, once a week. And it still happens every now and then. But I'll go into his office. I would go into his office and say, okay, look, I you sent me this email and this is what you said. And I know that's what you said. I know, I know you're not the last guy, but I have to know, are we okay? Are we, are we doing good? Like it, because, because my anxiety would just go up and I would start thinking about all the ways that my previous boss would yell at me. Mm. Uh, I would think of all the ways where, well, if my previous boss found out that I was doing X, Y, Z, then he would have this to say about it. And I know that's not who this guy is, but I have to go make sure about it. And again, finally, every single time he would say, Kevin, that's not who I am. If I have a problem, I will talk to you about it. If If I have an issue, I will talk to you about it. And honestly, besides, like my dad's a pastor. My dad was my pastor for for a few years there. And besides my dad, never has a pastor done something like that. Uh, and I think that's both condemning for the church in general, but also it gives me a lot of hope because I can look at this church and go, hey, I've worked through my trauma. I've worked through a lot of my trauma here, and I can hope and I can pray that I won't get more at this church, at least not from this guy, <laughs> at least not from this pastor, <laughs> at least not while he's here. Yeah, church is full of surprises. But at least while my pastor is at my church, I think we'll be all right. Yeah, I I resonated a lot with your story, Kevin. Um, I on multiple occasions, um, on multiple occasions, I was hurt by men that I looked up to in leadership who, you know, had these very influential roles and and were disappointing in in ways. But um, I spent I spent a solid ten years with, uh, with with my former worship pastor in particular, but also with one of my elders, um, just meeting with them every two weeks and being like, "Hey, when you uh, uh, when you looked a certain way, were you mad at me?" <laughs> and they're like, "Nope." Or 
when you made this comment or or when this thing happened, it made me feel this way. And I feel like I shouldn't tell you that. And they're like, you should. And hey, you did this thing. And I think that was really wrong. And they're like, thank you. Help me to work on that. Like mm-hmm. these kind of open, honest, um, present conversations that it, like I said, it took years for me to reprogram, to deprogram from the ways that I was that I that learned to like people please and that I'd learned that my feelings and my emotions don't matter to deprogram from that but then to also start reprogramming healthy relationships and reprogramming um the space to listen and to to speak and to to I mean really it's it's tw- I'm 20 years out on some of this stuff and it's just like oh when my body reacts this way, that's not just me like having gas. Like there's <laughs> there's things that are happening because I'm maybe not consciously or intellectually thinking about something that was said that made me uncomfortable. But my body's like, oh, I'm keeping score. There's a book by that title. Um and it was, and it's just those kind of relationships where I've been able to seek out. This is what healthy, accountable relationships look like. This is what healthy um commitment to a relationship looks like it's yeah. not people who are just endlessly demanding things of you yeah. but rather it's people who are willing to walk with you even when it's not to their benefit um and that that was really kind of essential in me making other choices to get out of other patterns of unhealthy and toxic and traumatic um church experiences uh-huh. um uh-huh. but knowing that that this is this is a a, a thing that takes time um and I think there's one more thing I want to mention about my about my former worship pastor um because I'm a a gay man people make all these assumptions about what it means for me to to seek support in church and one of the things that um has always been really helpful for me is many of the people have been profound in my healing process we aren't necessarily on the same page theologically we aren't necessarily um agreeing to all the same things or advocating for all the same things because us being able to have a healthy and productive relationship wasn't based on us checking off all these boxes of belief and, 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 mm-hmm. and so forth. It was more so because you were willing to be with me because you were willing to sacrifice um, the sacrifice your opportunity to, to be right or to tell me what the way is and instead to just be present, to be incarnate, to, to, to experience and to share my pain. Mm -hmm. That's what was transformative. It was not us going through a Bible study and and debating about which scriptures are interpreted what way. It was really just that, that willingness to commit to presence and commit to relationships. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. It really is. Darren's gonna have us all crying. I know. I felt that. I'm like, <laughs> started it. First imagine of all. it. Just sit with somebody, whether you agree with them or not. Just yep. give somebody space to just be a safe yeah. person. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right, everyone. We thank you for being here and for listening to us, and we hope you'll join us next week as we continue this conversation um, on a different avenue of church trauma and how to move forward. We couldn't even say hack, so. Oh. Oh. <laughs>
Did you didn't you didn't have substitutionary words? <laughs> no, because even gosh golly gee, um, darn, all of those mm-hmm. were not appropriate. And not appropriate for a Christian. Wow. Yeah. 